Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. exhibited internationally since the early 80s, having achieved recognition through the inclusion in the 1984 Venice Biennale and the 1985 Whitney Biennial. Robert has exhibited his work at Sonnabend Gallery, where he's had a number of exhibits since 1985. He's credited with having inspired the visual mood of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, directed by Terry Gilliam, as well as several other films. He is a distinguished professor of art at Penn State University, and when he's not painting and drawing, he performs music under his own name. I sat down with my former professor, and we talked about art, music, film, and even some of his experiences bumping into Andy Warhol, Sun Ra, and a lot of other interesting folks. Here's our conversation. Well, uh, I lived in New York for a stretch, and... Uh, or San Francisco, same thing. And I knew I wouldn't always be there. Yeah. And so even in the 70s, I was taping everything. I was in the Bay Area when uh, punk started. Mm -hmm. And uh, San Francisco is one of the hot spots. But I remember one of the stations said, this is just this is just in from London. This is a guy named Johnny Rodden. Yeah. And it was fresh, totally fresh. And yeah. I, I felt completely liberated, the kind of work I was doing at the time. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, we'd been stuck with the Eagles and people like that. Right. <laughs> Corporate rock, yeah, at that time. And then I felt completely re-energized when this music came out. I felt I was part of that scene. And it, it really, it was sort of art and music there at the time in the late 70s. It really made sense. It was really part of the atmosphere. Yeah, I can imagine. It must have been such um, a different kind of energy that was oh, coming yeah. out of that music. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what was the like the people that you were hanging out with, like the artists in the crowd or what you were seeing? What was it? Was it visually responding to that stuff or was it totally different? Well, what became known as neo-expressionism mm -hmm. was totally parallel to some of the, you know, hard punk bands in yeah. terms of its velocity and intensity and so forth and so on. And some of the bands had fast painters uh, that would... Mabui Gardens would have a, a band and then you have a fast painter on stage yeah. painting to the set. That's crazy. Uh, of course, the bands played, I mean, their sets were short, 20 minutes, because yeah. they got tired out because the, <laughs> yeah. the songs were so fast and right. so intense that uh, they couldn't sustain it more than 20 or 25 minutes. It wasn't a Zeppelin model of like the 40-minute <laughs> guitar solo. <laughs> no. yeah. And the, the songs were short. They were yeah. like two minutes, you know. These two-minute blasts, and uh, but no, it was very exciting. Um, I've often wondered if the because there's always a nugget I think that fuels a new form of expression, and like when you see Townsend like breaking his guitar at the end of a song, I wonder if the punk guys saw stuff like that, and then he just said, you know what, that should maybe be the meat of our <laughs> of our songs and our performance, and just 
said, we're going to go with that kind of expression the whole way through. I was lucky to see the last show of the, uh, of the uh, Sex Pistols. Where was at that? The, at the Cow Palace. Wow. And unfortunately, I was sitting up close to the stage because, uh, you know, they liked to antagonize the crowd yeah. and uh, everybody was spitting at them. <laughs> and of course, I wasn't quite reaching the stage, it was reaching me. Yeah. <laughs> But that was, their, in a crossfire. <laughs> that was their last show. I mean, uh, Sid Vicious was in pretty poor shape yeah. at that point. But uh, it was all very exciting. It seemed really cutting edge at the time. Yeah. Did you ever see the decline of Western civilization? It's on my to-do list. Yeah. I have it queued. I think I saw it when it came out. Because some of those bands were playing in the Bay Area, like yeah. X and yeah. those people, and the Germs, of germs course. <laughs> yeah, they were a big part, a big focus of that. And um, I was spending a lot of time in L.A. I'd work in, uh, I'd work up in Oakland. I had a, I had a studio in West Oakland in an old bar called the Dead End, mm-hmm. and I'd do some intense work for months, and then I'd go down and stay with my friend uh, uh, Patrick Morrison down in L.A., and he was also into that kind of stuff. He was a great Irish painter, recently deceased, sadly. And that's where I would do my social work and hanging out and so forth and so on. So my first show was actually in L.A. So you, like, if you don't mind, you moved around. It seems like you were moving a lot, and that came from your childhood, right? Because you were kind of nomadic to some extent? Well, once I left high school, I was. Yeah. Uh, well, the family did travel a lot, but uh, I went to college at Cooper Union in New York. Then I went down to LSU for some reason and was living in Baton Rouge, hanging out in New Orleans. And then from there, it was between Texas and the Bay Area for a period of time. And I got a, I got a job at uh, UC California, Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and another job at uh, UT Austin. A split position, so I was working in Austin in the fall and uh, Berkeley in the winter and spring, and I had my studio in Oakland. It was a beautiful summer studio. And so I was driving back and forth, uh, you know, four times a year. Yeah. And that, that's where a lot of the imagery came from, the uh, desert, the motel in the desert, and so forth and so on. Uh, those iconic night scenes where the, the palm tree be lit with orange on one side and green on the other. Yeah. Well, that was all on the road, you know, and yeah. um, it was really great, that period. So that that kind of moving between the two places was kind of fuel for the work in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've always been a proponent of travel and feel like that that really makes you see things differently. You know, I remember um, in high school driving across the country with some friends, you know, who were, I had a few friends who were really into, you know, on the road, Kerouac and... Ken Kesey and stuff like that, and they wanted to go to City Lights. They just wanted to make that <laughs> pilgrimage, and we we drove across with like a, a tent and uh, a gas card. One of the guys' uh, father gave him a gas card, and we I think I had forty bucks with me when we left, <laughs> and uh, we drove across the country, but and just camped out at campsites. But seeing the country and driving across, it's like you don't really understand how a how big the country is and just how diverse. The scenery is the light, you know, the sky at night until you drive across it. And then it's totally different when you do, we would do the loop up, you know, 80 across, like up north, and then dip down south through the south. And it's even that north to south is so different. Yeah. Yeah. This is pretty intense. 
Yeah, well, we were always, we were always uh, even when I was a kid, we were doing road trips between Texas and California. My grandparents lived in uh, Fresno, so we'd take those long, it was in my blood, really, those mm -hmm. long trips, and it just kept going. And then when I got to New York and started exhibiting with Sonnabend, uh, of course, they were very focused on Europe, so I started going to Europe a lot. Mm -hmm. I was in Italy many, many times. I worked in Italy, and so that, that dimension started opening up as well. Different kind of light, different kind yeah. of architecture, and... Well, one one uh, summer I was in near Livorno in a farm, and I'd been living in Manhattan. I always had a September show, so I'd be in my studio all summer, yeah. not seeing anything related to nature, getting Chinese food, and right. to, you know, uh, delivered. They delivered every kind of food. Yeah, and then uh, I'd have a meal out three a.m. every morning at uh, Lucky Strike and. Uh, uh, it was very nostalgic thinking about it, but uh, I'd go in at three in the morning and all the painters are there. Yeah. Uh, they'd all been up all night just like I had. And uh, there we were having our, our lunch, as it were, yeah. at three yeah. in the morning. That's the lunchtime, the lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, the night was always a time I felt I could work. Uh, I was, even when I was younger, uh, if I didn't have a job and I was just painting, I felt neurotic about painting during the day because that's when people had real jobs. Right. But at 6, 6 p.m., I, I was released from that, that burden. Right. And uh, then I'd fly. I'd yeah. go all night. Now, did you, you were probably pretty bunkered in if you were getting ready for shows, but would you go to other people's studios? Did you have a, a group of people that you were... A bit, a bit, yeah. I was... Uh, when I got into New York and started making contacts, it was with other figurative artists. And yeah. I met John Bowman. I got uh, to know Mark Tanzi very well. We started uh, hanging out, and it turned into an oddly into kind of a salon. Yeah. There was a bar we went to at 211, and at some point we had, uh, with Doug Blau, the writer and artist, we started having a kind of a salon, and. Uh, There'd be the inner circle of a few of us, and then <laughs> rings uh, circulating around as we, you know, said our profundities and right. massively got drunk and so forth. Yeah. But uh, those are the people who really sustained me. Yeah. And when you would, when you were in Oakland, was there a, a group there too, or was it? I was mostly a hermit there, but there were a lot of people working in uh, Emeryville, and uh, there were a lot of people that. Barry was very involved, but um, my, my my the people I hung out with socially were in L.A. Yeah, and what was the when you were in New York? Were you catching music too at that time? Well, back in the '60s, I was seeing I uh, saw Miles and and Monk and uh, but I lived on the Lower East Side. I was a block away from Slugs in the East Side, and yeah. saw you know uh, Sun Ra every week, and uh, he pl he played Monday nights. And uh, anybody could play with him. And uh, so he was there every Monday night. And uh, uh, Pharaoh Sanders was there a lot, Cecil Taylor. And my friend, uh, who I lived with, my roommate, uh, Mark Braz, was, he knew these people from, he was like a 12-year-old prodigy. And he yeah. was living with Cecil and living with uh, Leroy Jones and uh, Miles. He was like 
uh, taking care of Miles's cat and his plants while Miles was on the road. So he was an amazing entree into uh, the depths of that scene. It was yeah. really exciting. I That's why I went up to New York. I mean, I'd been listening to Coltrane in high school, and I said, I've just got to go to New York and yeah. be close to this. It's so amazing to think that you could just go there, and especially now in, in hindsight. I mean, obviously, I came to jazz later on, you know, much yeah. later, just imagine that you could just go see Sun Ra plays. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how inspiring that would be to feel like I can pretty much do anything, like after seeing <laughs> his expression, you know, and the way that he... Well, you see him on the streets, so, I mean, I would be walking down the street and there'd be Sun Ra leaning against the wall with a paper bag with a little, you know, fifth of uh, whatever it was, and yeah. uh, I'd, hey, son, and I'd go up and he'd, he'd hand me the, the bag and I'd have a drink with him. Uh, it was really intimate. And, yeah. uh, I'd see Ornette Coleman on the street. Hey, oh, man, how you doing? Yeah. Albert Eiler I'd talk to. Yeah. And uh, they were just in the scene. And it was, you know, very intimate that way. Were you um, at, at that, I'm trying to think of when he was kind of on the streets and doing his thing, but were you into Moondog back then? You'd see him. So if I was going up to the Whitney or the Met on the bus, I think he was on Madison Avenue. Maybe he was right near the Whitney. By I Carnegie, know. I thought too he would hang out by Carnegie Hall. Too. He might have moved around, but I would always see him on the on, on Madison Avenue, yeah. uh, in his Viking. You can't, yeah, you can't miss him. <laughs> <laughs> he was tall, yeah. and then he had his helmet with his uh, with his horns, horns and, it was, yeah. <laughs> and all his instruments too. Right, he would just keep them out. But some of the avant-garde was a step too far for me. Mostly it was, I, mean, I guess I saw uh, Yvonne Rayner dance at the uh, Judson, and she and her group, and I, I suppose Robert Morris might have been in the group, I don't know, mm -hmm. I didn't know who was who at the time, mm -hmm. but their, that, that dance performance back in 67 was constituted by their standing in place for an hour. Right. And, you know, it took a long time for me... <laughs> <laughs> to adjust. I mean, I was really prime on some of it, but other yeah. things like you know minimalism and dance was uh, just. I was. It was harder to digest to some of these things. Right. Yeah. But uh, Ryman was a. I'd come up to New York from Texas, and I was kind of a boy expressionist. I love Francis Bacon, and I get to New York, and the top dog is Robert Ryman, and it was really, <laughs> yeah. really knocked me out. I yeah, mean, the I other side of the coin. <laughs> I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> But some of the stuff I did find exciting. Some even you know um, Donald Judd and Flavin. I saw a Flavin show at Castelli in fifteen uh, in sixty seven or so, and well, it was just riveting. It was beautiful. Yeah. So I always was kind of back and forth and all that. Yeah, I love the parallels of music too. Because if you think about music at the time, like you'd have someone like you know Roland Kirk or Cecil Taylor yeah. or someone like that really expressive and punchy and kind of, you know, and then you would have, like, Cage doing, like, minutes of silence. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's yeah. a kind of a similar dynamic. It's, it's interesting because I don't think the musicians and the artists necessarily get on the same page. So you feel like it is this, just a moment when these things come out and it's, it's like a connected zeitgeist that's not determined. It's not, no one agrees upon, like, hey, we're just going to go out there, you know, but it's like this progression of creative expression that kind of syncs up, whether it's, you know, film, whether it's music or, you know, 2D visual art or whatever. I was really in the film. I'd already seen Chelsea Girls, and so, and I had contacts, so I went to see uh, Warhol in the old factory. Yeah. And uh, dropped a name or two, and we were 
we ended up talking for 30 minutes, mostly about our mothers. Which <laughs> <laughs> is very important to him. <laughs> and then drug dealers we knew in common. <laughs> but uh, I never got deeply into the scene. I uh, just, what I was there one night and uh, they were all on a big couch, about 15 people on this long circular couch, and they were all watching one of his films, which was the sun setting over San Francisco yeah. Bay. It's 45 minutes. And again, I mean, it was a step too far for me. I just right. couldn't, you know, get super excited yeah. about a sunset for 45 minutes. Yeah. If I'd stayed longer and gotten the right uh, drugs, I mean, I may, maybe it would have been into it. It's probably just as well that I missed the full experience. <laughs> right at the factory because I, I left New York, uh, you know, intact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you could take an empire and its full length of that movie and just watch the Empire State Building for 24 hours, <laughs> you, you're probably in some sort of condition. Well, that's, it was sort of like, all those films were sort of like an endurance test and if you were, you know, a real heavy, yeah. you would sit there yeah. and watch the Michael Snow movie right. of a, close up of a white wall, going back to a, a, a long distance shot of a white wall for an hour. Yeah. And the people that got up and left were weaklings. And, right. You know, the, the real, you know, the hipsters really just uh, stuck in their chairs and the looked at every frame. <laughs> yeah, the committed conceptualists would like grind it out for the uh, quality of the avant-garde element of it. But the same with schizophrenic, uh, some cases you had to pick sides. Yeah. and. Um, I was already a figurative painter, and uh, there was a figurative painting scene, Philip Perlstein and Paul Georges and uh, Alfred Leslie. Mm -hmm. Leslie was a madman. Yeah. I mean, it's not like these were conservative, uh, uh, dour people. They were, right. uh, Leslie was nuts. Yeah. And um, so we had a group called the Figurative Artists Alliance. The second meeting was at Leslie's studio, and then it moved over to the um, uh, Educational Alliance on East... Uh, East Broadway, and it met every Friday night, and we considered ourselves the rebels. The official people were the minimalists. Right. We were the rebels, and we were screaming and hollering, having fights. People would go out and have fist fights outside. I was like 19 or 20 years old. Yeah. To me, it was utterly exciting. You know, yeah. it really committed, helped me commit myself to art because uh, this was just such a vibrant scene. Yeah, and you come in with these people who are so committed to it and living it, you know. And a lot so, of them had been abstract expressionists in the 50s. So we tried to, you know, revive the Cedar uh, Bar. And we'd have, you know, after the meeting, we'd go Chinese, have some Chinese and go up to the Cedar Bar and spend all night up there. Yeah. So they were kind of trying to re relive those moments. But uh, for me, it was just uh, very authentic. Well, yeah. since you, and you guys were the sort of the, I don't know how to express it, sort of the dark, raging... You know, figurative. Were the conceptualists like you wouldn't see them? They were just purely academic and kind of stayed to themselves? Well, I guess my best story about that, I, Hans Hockey was at Cooper Union, mm -hmm. and I had met him. I was a junior, I believe. I was on the sixth floor. That's where the painters were, and I was working on this six-by-nine uh, Italian Baroque-style picture of hippies, naked hippies up in the air, of fornicating, and then on the ground were policemen, you know, ready to shut it down. It was a pretty fabulous painting. But um, Hockey uh, was in across the street of the sculpture school, and one day he saw fit to bring his whole sculpture class over to the other building, go up the elevator, sorry, go up the elevator, 
and uh, come into my studio, uh, like 12 people, and uh, Hockey points to me in the painting and says, the last of the scumblers, <laughs> and then turn around and left with his class. And rather than be feel crushed, I felt completely elated because here was, I mean, to me, he was a famous artist. He'd already been on magazine covers. For him to take the time to come over and to, like, uh, insult me personally <laughs> and uh, with his whole class yeah. and then leave, I said, man, I must be on to something. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really energizing. I met him years later and... Uh, recounted that story yeah. and he was gracious about it. Did he it. chuckle? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it's funny. I was just talking to someone today about the whole idea of, you know, the no bad, no review, even if it's his, mm-hmm. the worst review ever, is really that bad because people are paying attention to your work, you know? Well, when I got going in California, uh, they had an art press and also they had newsstands. I was thinking about it because you mentioned Jack Kerouac. Yeah. I found I was look I was down at my local newsstand in Dallas when I was in high school and I was basically there to look for pornography. Mm-hmm. And then I found this book called On the Road and I opened it and I saw the word marijuana. I said, Okay, I'll get this. <laughs> so I didn't hear about On the Road, I just found it in yeah. a newsstand. That's what newsstands were. There were these places of discovery. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, by the time I got out to the Bay Area, um, there were art magazines. I mean, local art magazines. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I was on the cover of these magazines. There was an art press, and some of, some of the reviews were vicious. Yeah. But um, it was exciting. There was a, a immediate response, critically, to the work that we were doing. And I know now it's blogs and so forth and so on, but it's not the same. Because yeah. in a newsstand, you just are there looking for this event and there's this magazine art magazine I think I'll look that up I'll yeah. look at that yeah. so there's an arbitrariness to it that uh, blogs don't necessarily give us yeah it's almost like back then I mean even anything pre-internet yeah in a way it's like information found you you know right, right. like things came to you yeah and now it's just you're choosing mm-hmm. you're filtering out what you want even there, with news these days. There was an element of chance. It was uh, yeah. lovely when you made a discovery. Yeah. It's like when you go, used to go into record stores. Same thing, yeah. And you would, uh, I would, you know, see an LP, and that cover looks kind of crazy. Maybe <laughs> right, I'll try right, that, you know. Right, right. And uh, you're like, what's this persuasive percussion? You know, it's like, <laughs> that looks like an Al Held painting. I'm going to just pick that up and see what it sounds like. Yeah. You know, you would just find things not just immediately know what it is or know about it before it comes out. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of um, discovery, I think, is it's so shifted now. Yeah, It's such a different thing, but... It moves on. Yeah, and there's a different way to navigate it now, I think, that can be... Oh, there's still surprises out there. Yeah, yeah. Just we get them different cha- from different channels. Right, but. exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, I remember being excited driving across the country, going to thrift stores and finding records... Or finding like concert T-shirts and things like that, you know, and I feel like now you can go to, you know, different websites and find different things that you can't find in those stores anymore, or something like that. It just gets, it just changes, I guess. I've been dragging around my vinyl collection for forty years, and now mm-hmm. it's time for me to get rid of it. Yeah. They're all scratched up. It's, like, you know, yeah. I listen to some Parker. LPs so many times that uh, and they were the quality of the recordings were bad in the first place right. 
but uh, you can barely understand what you're listening to, but I'm so attached to them. I'll, I prefer the scratches. To the crackle. It's a, yeah, nice, yeah, yeah. it's a real nice sound. You know? Pops, crackles, yeah. and so forth. It's that warmth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. But if you hear that in, a lot of times they play that on the radio, it doesn't sound the same when you don't have that vinyl spinning in your proximity. It's like when you're hearing it in reproduction, it's not nearly, I'd just rather have the, the remastered you know, digital version that sounds better. Yeah. But yeah, I had a bunch of old records. I used to collect old jazz records, but when I moved to New York, my room was so small. Right. I had to get rid of it, you know, and just convert it to CDs. <laughs> I've always been in big studios. Uh, it's just, now I live out in central Pennsylvania, so I've got 4,000 square feet for virtually nothing. I, I couldn't ever afford that in New York. Yeah. I'm just so used to being in a big place. I've always found myself in these kinds of places, even if they were derelict. I mean, the, the dead end that I was in, this old bar in, in in West Oakland, I didn't know who owned it for six months. I didn't pay any rent. <laughs> You're just in there. <laughs> I didn't, because the checks were coming back, uh, you know, return to sender. And then one day I heard this pounding on the door, and this. Uh, I looked through the mail slot. I never would open the door. I'd look through the mail slot, and there's this little guy with a pork pie hat and a little stogie in his mouth and two big stevedores with, like, belly bats, you know. <laughs> and, and the guy said, I want you out in 20 minutes. Since I was such a bad housekeeper, the canceled checks were right at my feet. So I just started throwing them, pushing them through the mail slot, saying, I pay, I pay, I just didn't know who to pay, I'll pay you. Yeah. And they let me stay. There you go. <laughs> well, you had a few months there for free, I guess. So. I, it's funny because, um, well, since you had a big studio pretty much your whole time of working, do you, did that? kind of facilitate you working on multiple paintings at the same time? Or did you yeah. were you a one-at-a-time kind of person? No, I had to work on multiple paintings. So I, I get so obsessive-compulsive mm-hmm. that if I work on one, I'll just keep working on it. So if I have four or five or six going at the same time and can look at them. Uh, my first show at Sonobin, unfortunately, I was uh, using uh, Paul George's studio on Warren Street. He was out of the country. And he had... Uh, the top two floors, and he cut a hole, because he did huge paintings, he did yeah. 20 by 20 foot paintings. So I, he had cut a hole through the top floor to have kind of a, a balcony where you could look down. I, I did 14 six by 11 foot paintings for the first Sonobin show, and I could just stand up there and look down at this whole, whole array. I mean, I don't know how else I could have done it. It's amazing. And then he had a mechanical uh, easel, it was sort of like uh, you'd have in a movie studio. Yeah. Uh, he could really, uh, 20 by 20 foot painting, he could push a button and it would go upside down, uh, spin upside down yeah. so he could work on the top. So that was fortunate. And later I had other studios, weren't quite as, um, you know, humongous as that one, but yeah. that really helped me get started there. I've never had a big studio. My studios have always been small, and I think it's gotten to a point to where. I prefer that now. Like, I can't... I think you have to have discipline to do that, and that's yeah. probably a good thing. Yeah, and it, well, and I work on one piece, usually one piece or two at the most, but usually one at a time. And I think it's like a chicken and egg sort of thing. I think that that tendency was born out of the fact that I just couldn't have five have big choice. paintings up at the same time. And then you get used to that. It's almost like you know, your process... 
sometimes is is determined by your environment, you know. By your circumstances. Yeah. I mean, some people, I have a lot of friends nowadays in the city, like you were saying, you know, back in the day, I'm sure you could get a big loft for not too, too much money. Now you can't get a phone booth for, you know. Leslie a had a studio that was a couple of thousand square feet on on West 8th Street. I think it paid $8 a month or something. Oh, my God. I mean, a lot of these places didn't have heat. Yeah. But they had space. Right. And, uh, yeah, so, so some of the great painters for time had these great deals. With yeah. And yeah, now you add a few zeros to that every, every month's <laughs> yeah, rent. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, well, I have a lot of friends who have, you know, small spaces because they can't, can't afford big spaces and they make smaller work. Yeah. It's just not feasible to make a 20-foot painting. The big paintings made sense for a while, but, uh, you know, I always did smaller work, too. I uh, I like getting lost in a big painting yeah. where you're really enveloped in it. Also, the physical action of working in a big painting where you're almost dancing. I'd be going back and forth and up yeah. and down. Uh, really physically engaged me, and that doesn't really happen with a small painting. Yeah, and you can't see it. It's not, with a small painting, you can just see the painting. Or the big painting, you got to really around. It's a, you got to really step back quite a ways to yeah. see the whole of the. And I'm, I have monocular sight, so I'd have to get even further back yeah. to see the whole thing. But um, yeah, you can't have a small studio if you <laughs> bump into the wall behind you and you can't get back from it. I didn't always know what I was doing, and so <laughs> a painting would be finished, finished, and then I'd see later in the gallery. Wait a minute, what was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can really get back from it and get good lighting yeah. on it. And you're like, oh, this looks a little different than I remember it. Yeah. Well, um, when you were working in New York and you had a big studio, when you would install those, like how many paintings were you doing for a show at that time? And well, were they all big or were you making smaller ones? Well, Sonobin had a big space. and I On Broadway? Was it the one that uh, was on 420 Broadway? West Broadway. Yeah. I didn't know how to do a, I don't know how I would have done a show at Small Paintings because, I mean, they just had a lot of space. So I ended up doing the uh, 11 or 12 or 14 really big paintings that I described, and it fit in very nicely. Um, and they were, I was working pretty fast at that time. That was just part of the mode. It took some organizing. You do a drawing first. I did a worked out pastel. Then maybe I'd project the pastel onto the six by eleven foot canvas. I sort of had a method at a certain point, and I could even I hired a couple of people. They could if I had a shag run a shag rug along the whole bottom of the painting, I'd teach them how to what effect I wanted, and they'd do it. Uh, so for a period of time, I was able to ex exteriorize my drive to incorporate other people helping me. Yeah. And having a real nice uh, method of pre-planning. Without the computer, there weren't any computers at the time. But, yeah. uh, there were steps one would take. And sometimes I would just improvise on the canvas, but that was always a little dicier. Yeah. But... Um, when you were, um, were you working in acrylic then? I'd go back and forth between acrylic and oil. Uh, I had been an oil painter, but uh, the obsessive compulsive problem where you could work on a nostril for three days, I had to break that habit. And so the acrylic uh, allowed me or forced me to work faster. 
I had uh, my first job at Berkeley. I, I was sharing a studio with uh, a great Cuban painter named um, uh, uh, Asaceta, Luis Cruz Asaceta, and I I walked in the first day to uh, into the studio we were sharing. He had a big table in the middle room, middle of the room, with about a hundred cups of premixed acrylics in uh, all the hues possible. And I said, that's how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> By the time I got to New York, I met this paint maker named uh, Michael, uh, oh heck, anyway, Chromatech Paint out of Canada. And he, Michael Toe, he would come in with his paint, and, uh, incredibly plasticky, living kind of uh, paint. Mm -hmm. uh, the pathanthal red was some sort of like succubus that pulled at you, you know, and it pulled at the brush and it was, like working with heavy stand oil, but it yeah. was uh, it was acrylic, and I'd fill the troughs uh, with a lot of paint and uh, big brushes, big loads of paint all over the place. A lot, of, it's a water sport. A lot of water everywhere, and uh, that allowed me to do like you know gradated s s uh, sunset, uh, eleven feet across, an acrylic all fused in a gradient and the three minutes time I had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Which was really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and we, your colors options are different too in a way, right? Because acrylics give you more synthetic, like punchier. Well, oil um, gets muddier easier. So if you put uh, emerald green into some mauve or purple, it can get muddy pretty fast. Yeah. Whereas with acrylic, the molecules in the uh, s suspension are bigger. And so... The green really penetrates into the purple in a way that relates to artificial light, yeah. and that's the chroma is more is more uh, pure, longer. Yeah. So that opened things up. Mm -hmm. And when when you were back in those you know early days and being in New York and stuff, the film that you because I know you're really into film. What were the films that you were looking at back then? I mean, other than you were saying you you saw the Warhol films, but was like brackage happening then? Were you into? Well, the thing that really opened up the work for me, uh, two things. Uh, I saw the first uh, film noir uh, retrospective that I had seen. I didn't know that. I knew some of the films, obviously, but I didn't know it was a a class a genre of film. And I saw a retrospective around '75 or so. That was an eye opener in terms of working with narrative, which my work is generally speaking narrative and character it was at the time. And then the other big thing that happened, I was in, a, was my girlfriend uh, at the time, Terrell Seltzer, uh, who was working with Wayne Wang on his early work. Uh, we were in a, I was in a, through her I met Constance Penley and there was a film collective theorist, film theorist, and uh, I was coming from New York and the idea that pictures were over and all of a sudden, I'm sitting around a table with hyper-intelligent people, and they're talking about Seven Brides for Seven Brothers or something like that, yeah. very seriously. For, they're studying frame by frame, and I said, wait a minute. These are the creme de la creme of intellects on the continent, and they're studying pictures. Yeah. And that gave me total permission, along with uh, the noir and other influences, but uh, in terms of films, uh, Technicolor from the 50s was 
the color link I had yeah. in terms of my own palette that I was working with. And then uh, finally I was uh, influencing films. And um, so uh, it was a problem. Yeah. Uh, problem, I was I should have been flattered at the same time. There was a video on MTV where they had actually made uh, Trump, um, you know, uh, Trumploy sets, and there were actual actors in the places of the figures in my painting. Yeah. I found about it after found out about it after the fact, and I had a lawyer, but I was very soft on copyright yeah. uh, issues. I said, "Ah, what the heck," you know. But that was running on MTV, and uh, and then the other film, uh, Grand Canyon, came out, and uh, I was thinking of suing them because they had contacted me to rent a painting for the film, and they said, we're not going to use it anymore, the script's changed. And then I go in, and I, well, I usually get phone calls first. Have you seen this movie? Right. And I go in, and I see, t uh, you know, five minutes of uh, really a living version of my, my paintings. And uh, that was, I mean, that's a story unto itself. Yeah. And then finally, uh, I was called to, uh, a producer on you called me uh, and said, you're the art director for Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Well, it turned out I wasn't. <laughs> they changed their minds. But uh, in that instance, I liked the film, and I liked the director, uh, Terry Gilliam, and I also got credit. And uh, to you know, they wrote up my uh, work, my vision, and uh, different articles, and I have, they have me, give me a plug on the DVD. So in that case, I'm fine with that. Yeah, you got some sort of... When the second case, where they actually come to you and they're like, hey, we want to use your stuff. And they're like, no, never mind. And then they actually just recreate that. And they uh, initially, uh, they were sending a letter to my lawyer saying, this is Lawrence Kasdan. I don't know who Yarber is. Never heard of him. Right. And by the third or fourth round of letters, of course, he's wonderful. I know his work. It inspired me. But I'm not copying it. <laughs> But we didn't pursue it. It's impossible to sue yeah. a movie studio because yeah. they have fifty lawyers. I had one, right? And I didn't like the movie, and uh, so they wanted to give me credit. I said I don't want my name on the film. Yeah. <laughs> when you, uh, when did you? You traveled to South America, right? Yeah, I was in. Uh, I had a show in Rio in eighty uh, seven. Effect on your. Well, I ended up taking a lot of pictures of Rio and. Uh, I mean, I, a lot of my paintings at that point were of coastal cities at night. I did a lot of paintings based on Hong Kong and uh, Rio. A lot of them were just Monaco. Basically, they were ripoffs of postcards. But um, the idea of the coastal city and, you know, striking natural uh, traits along with this uh, glitzy uh, engorgement of light and uh, what I really was... I never really got to the bottom of it. The, the real, uh, the holy grail for me was to get the kind of vapor mixed with light yeah. and uh, the schmutz, mm -hmm. which I had discovered in L.A. When you, you know, two in the morning, you look up and it's a purple sky and there's a orange lit palm tree against a purple or a green sky. That's when I got really open to this the effect of artificial light yeah. on, a na on nature and these settings. and So I was uh, always looking for a way to get haze and uh, 
And sometimes I really got it. I was really yeah. pleased when I was able to capture that that sort of atmospheric quality of yeah. those places. And those those coastal images too. One thing that's really striking is all that light and glitz of the assumed glitz of those lights and the resort like or the sort of nightlife and then the reflection that the water creates in it. Yeah. I think is really amazing too because it's it's this mixture of man made and nature. You know. Yeah, it's delirious. It's yeah. a delirium. And uh, it was, I, I always was ambivalent about resorts. My, my family would visit resorts. My father had been in a hotel business. And I loved them and I hated them. Yeah. And uh, that ambivalence is really what powered the work because it was a mixture of desire and loathing. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, I think one thing that painters sometimes you're empowered by is this very ambivalence which you're working out in their work. Yeah. Uh, this discordancy. And that's maybe what makes a painting exciting is when they're wrangling with these discordant impulses. Yeah. It's like a comfort and a discomfort at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when an early painting I did um, <clears throat> that I think got it for me was it's this night or not night it's a daytime of, of trees in the winter just with no leaves and snow falling, and behind it there's an Exxon sign. Yeah, right. And it's this idea in my mind of, you know, this, this pastoral, beautiful nature scene, but this gas sign just ruins it, you know? But then if you were driving out in the middle of nowhere in this forest, and you're running out of gas, and you see that sign, it's like the best thing you've ever seen. You know, so it's like that duality. Well, when you're driving at night in the uh, Sierras or wherever, the mountain range in front of Vegas... I mean the old Vegas. I have no use for the new Vegas, yeah. but the Vegas of the Sands and Sinatra and Dean Martin, that era of architecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be driving over that last rise at midnight or something and seeing that in the basin below you yeah. just hit you like some sort of you know acid flash. Right. And uh, so that was part of it, that, that just ecstasy yeah. of that, that sort of scene. And totally man-made. But uh, my family had been going to Vegas since I was uh, 10 months old, you know. And uh, I was like home away from home in a way. And then later I had a show at the University of Nevada and I met some of the architects. And they were not at all nostalgic about the <laughs> buildings they were tearing down, yeah. which I loved so much. Right. And one of them said, well, this has always been a tent town. Yeah. So they have no sense of permanency in terms of Whatever they're building, whatever you see today is going to be torn down tomorrow. At least that's how it was for the last forty years or so. Yeah. But uh, that era of creativity and architecture—you got it in Miami with uh, Lapidus and uh, Fontainebleau, yeah. and uh, this sort of resets uh, modernism, this vulgarized modernism, right. which was so great. I love that stuff. And yeah. Miami held on to it a little more, I think, mm -hmm. than Vegas did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I love that. So architecture is obviously a, has been a huge part of your work. Yeah, definitely. and also it was very inspiring to me. Yeah. Um, well, I remember when I was an undergrad, I had that book, Learning from Las Vegas. Yes, yes, yes. And I was like really interested in the idea of how the spaces we create define us as a society, mm -hmm. and how over different you know cultures and different mm -hmm. places, it's so different, you know, and it relates to the culture. And Venturi had the idea of learning from the vernacular. Yeah. And like pumping up the vernacular to make it something strange and new. Right. right. So, uh, yeah, that was a very important idea. Yeah, I was fascinated by the, 
the duality of that and thinking about the, the setting and then the debauchery and all that, you know, <laughs> the sort of, you know, that kind of side of the human side of it as well, you know, and how those things mix together. Well, I think we probably looked through the window. I was never a committed libertine in the sense that I wasn't losing it in Las Vegas on some sort of drunken spree. Yeah. But the idea that, yes, the ambiance suggested that that was a possibility. If right. you wanted to pursue that, it was available to you. And that gave it a certain kind of a pizzazz. Right. Was, uh, but if you're a painter, you have to paint. Yeah. <laughs> and so we right. can't really, although I knew a lot of painters that managed to work in the degradation yeah. and the painting. Right. But it wasn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe Miami is now our current Vegas. Yes. Because yes. Vegas has become... Stayed you know, and the family, like... Yeah, it's like Disney and Miami is the cutting edge of weird stuff happening. Yeah. And all that money and debauchery. And then the, the art fair, you know, and yeah. like all that stuff going on. And, and weird diseases and weird drugs. Yeah. It just keeps coming. Yeah. <laughs> In Florida. Yes. That place. <laughs> um. Do you, uh, so do, in your current work, what are you working on now? Like what's, what have you been up to recently? Well, I uh, had been in Nepal for a year and uh, I'd been interested in Indian art for some time and Tibetan art. And so when I had a sabbatical from my university, I uh, decided to go to Nepal with my family. So in 2007, eight, we were in Kathmandu and the work at the time was my version of uh, some of those elements I was interested in. And I got back to New York and uh, somehow they didn't quite suit what I really wanted to do. But I had my dealer come over and he was uh, looking at the paintings and he was a little uh, put off by them. But I had one drawing, a color pencil drawing I'd done on the table quite by accident, it wasn't strategic. It just yeah. happened to be at the table. And right. He picked it up and said, I, I could work with this. And so I started doing these colored pencil drawings and uh, uh, that was my first of these recent shows I've done showing these uh, colored pencil drawings. The first show was uh, Calaveras Gnosticos uh, in 2009. The second one was uh, uh, Irrational Exuberance in 2010, it's both at Sonobin and then uh, more recently, well, somewhat recently, uh, Panic Pending, which was in Amsterdam at Alex, uh, at, uh, Alex Daniels Gallery in Amsterdam. But uh, they started as 8 by 11 drawings, and then finally, by the end of it, I was doing 60 by 80 drawings, and they were, they were insanely complicated. Yeah. And, um, but there was a very wild interlocking narrative. A friend of mine, Herbert Marks, who teaches at Indiana, he takes 80, drives 80 over to New York periodically, and he'd stop by. And uh, he'd look at these drawings, and uh, Herbert's this way anyway, but he would immediately start disgorging volumes of interpretation of these drawings, you know, just they were just coming out of if, like some sort of geyser. Mm -hmm. And then when I found that I was going to get a, a book out of the gallery in Amsterdam and there was going to be a text, uh, I said, Herbert, can you do the text? And he got so into he just finished uh, an exegesis of uh, the Old Testament 
for uh, Norton. Mm-hmm. He'd spent 10 years doing commentary and annotations of the Old Testament, and I was his next project. So he brought this focus of uh, interpretive zeal mm-hmm. to these drawings, and we worked for six months on every little aspect, and that became the essay, and that's going to come out soon in the, the yearbook of comparative literature. And uh, so maybe that will reach a new audience. Yeah. I'm excited about that. And um, uh, But anyway, that was a real... Uh, really grueling uh com- i was i thought i was going insane it felt great <laughs> i really felt <laughs> i really felt imbalanced yeah and i loved it and then i uh, as i was telling you earlier i started doing music i was uh singing some songs that were just downloaded from the skies some morning morning or other i'd have three complete songs that i just, just came to me immediately and i would write them down and sing them into a microphone and they eventually came this very elaborate uh, volume of music like hours and hours of music based on about five or six songs i started lapping them uh, layering them putting through echo effects over and over so it started as sort of a psycho billy um, you know deranged buck owens and ended up sounding like Leggetti or Luigi Nono or something like that. Yeah. Two poles of music that I deeply, deeply love. I deeply love George Jones, mm-hmm. and I deeply love Zanakis yeah. and uh, Stockhausen. Mm-hmm. Uh, both. I love both. I embrace both. I love both. And in this case, I was able to blend both, yeah. <laughs> which was a wonderful <laughs> thing. By the end of the project, I was only listening to my music. I couldn't bear listening to anything else. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of examples on YouTube, but uh, not to my satisfaction yet. I have to start seriously just editing them and doing... I'm not going to make little movies either. It's just going to be the music. Yeah. You know. So that was very exciting. Now I'm uh, looking... I'm starting to develop a little bit of arthritis, so prob- partly probably due to the labor-intensive uh, rendering I did for... Those five or six years. Oh, yeah, the um, colored pencil. Right? <laughs> yeah. Doesn't flow off the brush, kind of like. Well, some of them really, you needed to bear down. Yeah. And then there was all the ra- uh, racing. I, I, I made piles of eraser shavings. And, uh, yeah, it was very labor-intensive. But uh, So now I can't do that anymore. I'm probably going to reprise uh, one of my earlier styles. I might be interested in revisiting the nocturnal landscape without the figures. I did a few of those at one point. I was very happy doing those. Yeah. Maybe I'll investigate that again. Yeah, I feel like when you go a certain amount of time and leave a way of working and then you come circle back to it, you bring all that time in between to it. So it's just inherently different. And, <laughs> but it's similar, but it's different, you know, and it's kind of, it can give you like a second energy in that work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm not disturbed about time off anymore. Mm-hmm. When you're younger and you have a dry spell, you panic. Oh, it's over. I'm yeah. not going to work again. I have no more inspiration. But now I see this. When I work, it's compulsive. It's in, I, It takes over my life. So yeah. naturally, when I'm not working, I just have to back off right. and recover and pay a few bills and call a friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try to discover living again as yeah. opposed to flying in that ethereal height yeah no I had to do like I would get this you know if you have too much time off I would fear this I'm going to get disconnected or Mm -hmm. feel disconnected 
And then you get a certain point when you're forced out of your studio, whether you're traveling or whatever it is, <clears throat> when you come back to it, you feel like that little bit of difference, that yeah, feeling yeah. of difference is exciting because... That can trigger a whole new body of yeah, work. Yeah, and, and it's not like a premeditated... Sort of no, it's not an executive decision yeah. to, you know, I really don't like that side where you're going to decide ahead of, ahead of time, some marketing ploy or yeah. something. Now I'm going to do this. Yeah. No, I like it coming from within in a certain involuntary manner. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like a, um, an unconscious new angle. Yeah. That yeah. only time and space can create. <laughs> and then everything else that you're taking in during that time becomes and you hope people are interested in it yeah but uh, that's not the fir- foremost thought for me uh, the foremost thought is I have to answer this call yes from the beyond right. and then I hope later that people will like it but, yeah uh, yeah but we you initially you do it for yourself like you have this need to just when I was younger uh, fortunately I had two or three good friends and we were on each other's case so, so I think a young artist needs that little core yeah. group where yeah. you're really pushing each other. But beyond that, I had a very a very big uh, pseudo audience of Suzanne and all these different people looking on yeah. from the afterlife. Right. And uh, to me, it was very literal. Yeah. You know, I yeah. really felt that these guys were present. And um, uh, it really never made me feel like I was as isolated as I actually was. Yeah. I really felt like there was a sphere I was working in. Today, with art history being kind of over in a way, uh, I feel a little more lost because there was, even being against the trends, mm-hmm. there was a trend. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you could react against it. Exactly. But now if there's a trend, I don't know what it is. It's yeah. so multivaried and variegated and all over the place that yeah. uh, it's hard to uh, react against a trend. There, is, oh, there are no trends that I know of. They're just... just Rampant, uh, varied uh, activities a bunch of individuals are engaged in. It's like all, all these people are doing all these different things, and then some of those people just trend. They're trending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like certain artists are trending. It's not like a trend of certain art, mm-hmm. which is which mimics the internet information and the way that we yeah going full circle to yeah. the way we encounter information. So if people want to see the new things that you do, like. When you put out music, will you link to that on your website? You know, I don't go on the web much now. I did. Yeah. I don't now. So I know I have some. I have a website. I have a little bit of music on YouTube, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not bringing it. I'm not husbanding the field and the, the the farm isn't being looked after properly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a long nap. But I'm always on the verge of really getting down on the website. The work, the recent work is on my site. It's on uh, the gallery site. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of stuff floating around. I don't know how it even gets on the line. And uh, I want to get the music on. I'm doing other things now. I'm writing fiction now, and it's a wonderful release. You know, it's kind of... Uh, uh, kind of future noir, you yeah. know, uh, sci-fi noir. Everybody's doing it, but I have my own take on it yeah. and my own visual sense, and I hope that will go into it. And as such a huge lover of film, yeah, both That's contemporary all at hand. and historically, have you ever... I wrote a screenplay in 2003 and uh, with uh, Rich Doyle, mm-hmm. and uh, 
you know, some professionals read it and they had comments, but it was 120 pages long. I decided, and I knew movie producers, the idea was to present it to people. But at the end, I didn't feel it was good enough. There were great things in it, but I didn't, but on the other hand, the uh, experience of getting that deep into it and living inside those characters was transporting. It was really amazing. And uh, but when you're doing something like that, you find that maybe if you know all these films and so forth and so on, you might just be imitating, and the original originality might be a very low quotient. I know nobody cares about that anymore anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you're holding yourself not even too as strong. a filmmaker to t- too high a standard. Too high a standard. But uh, may, writing was just. Tremendous, and uh, I'm re-experiencing that now. It's amazing how much of the visual material is in the writing, yeah. And it's just another way to see the stuff, right? Because when I'm writing, it's sort of like when I'm teaching. Sometimes I'm seeing in my mind's eye what I'm talking about. So in the and uh, the writing, I'm seeing the characters. I'm seeing the scene. I guess a lot of writers might experience that, but it's really exciting. Yeah. And uh, so that's one of the things I'm exploring. That's great. Well, thanks for taking all this time and, and, oh, and sharing a lot of your past stories and, <laughs> you know, and your work with us. One of the things I was thinking about is writing a memoir. Yeah, that would be And that's great. another possibility because yeah. there were a lot of funny things that happened. Then you can consult on the the movie adaptation of your own. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hire and, and fire. And they'll say, no, no, thanks. We, we know your work. We'll have someone else paint it and put it in your movie for you. <laughs> right, right. You won't get any benefit. You won't get any kickbacks from that. Yeah. Well, let's hope that happens. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.